0: I'm not, say, a bishop, a cardinal, a pope. I'm also not somebody who grants people the privilege of hearing some super-secret music from the underground. I'm just a schnook. Hi, 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 hi. You see, some people say hi, hi, hi. I throw an extra one in there just for you. Welcome to Chapter 17 of Autobiography of a Schnook. I'm Sean And happy 2020. As I record this introduction, which is one of the very last things I'm recording in this episode, I'm going through a day in Chicago that just hasn't seen any sunlight. The sky has not been clear for the entire year 2020 so far, except for just one day. Just one day. And tomorrow, as I record this, it's the first day of February. And February 2nd is the first day we're supposed to see a nice clear sky. Finally. So there's a big epidemic of SAD across the area. Seasonal Affective Disorder. But hopefully this helps. Hopefully this podcast will help some of you who may be victims of it. The big news here for the new year is that in my state, recreational pot is now legal. Of course, it does have some uh, little asterisks involved. Uh, For one thing, you have to be 21 or older to buy it and you have to buy it from a licensed dispensary and also because it's such a new law and supplies are low they're giving priority to people with prescriptions so that they don't run out of what they need i haven't tried anything well yet <laughs> and if i do it's not going to be smokable cuz i i can't stand smoke i can't i would like to try a brownie someday i think but i don't know but it turns out there is a problem with severe lack of supplies, which is understandable. It happens all the time when a state legalizes it. It was especially bad in Nevada when Nevada legalized pot, because Nevada's in a desert, pretty much. Hard to grow anything in the desert. People were sharing stories on Facebook about how this year, coinciding with the legalization of pot, emergency room visits were up significantly on New Year's Eve. Um, only problem with that is, uh, stuff didn't go on sale until 6 a.m. on New Year's Day. So, yeah, you might want to reconsider your, uh, the logic. Anyway, welcome to my podcast. And I want to share a really nice comment I got from uh, Ian Cullen in Scotland, who says, Hi, Sean. Well, hi, Ian. Just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the podcast. It's entertaining, but also very educational. I've learned way more than I ever thought I would about the Beach Boys, Catholic schools, 70s Muppet Christmas specials, and most recently, that ketchup should not be put on a hot dog. Uh, just finished Chapter 11 and slowly catching up. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Ian. That is so nice of you to say that. Thanks for that email. And uh, you all can comment to me uh, via email at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. The only Muppets Christmas special I really talked about was Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, and I don't even know if you can technically count that as a Muppets thing, because the only Muppet in that special was Kermit. And even then, there's an edited version that doesn't have Kermit in it. But I try not to speak of that version. But yeah, Ian, if you think you heard more than you ever thought about the Beach Boys, wow. (laughs) It's pretty scary what some of us do know. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details now, but uh, let's just say, sometimes it's just not pretty. Sometimes it's not pretty. Catholic schools, well, listen on, my friend, we're going to push schools aside and go into church today. And I'm not going to talk for much longer now before I begin the first segment, because I just want to get into things. This is going to be a little bit of a longish segment. In chapter 6, one of the segments was called Growing Up Catholic, Catholic School. Well, yeah, now this segment is going to move over to attending Mass, my observations. Uh, By the way, if any of you are particularly sensitive, easy to insult, just skip the next 38 minutes or so. If you don't have a sense of humor, don't listen. That's all I got to say. I don't mean anything to be mean-spirited, by the way. I just want to disclaim right now that I have nothing but the utmost respect for those who are devoutly religious as long as they don't use it as an excuse to be bad to people. But I figured, why not have fun with it? So, here we are with Growing Up Catholic, my observations on The Mass. There's a scene in a Simpsons episode in which the Simpsons are coming home from church and the kids are ecstatic because it was now the longest possible time before the next time they'd be in church. Well, yeah, it's kind of like that. Those of you who are not Catholic, believe me, Mass is not the most exciting thing in the world, at least most of the time. Say that and you're greeted with some standard Catholic guilt— after all that God gave you, you can give him an hour a week. Some of us would respond that God deserves better, but what are you going to do? Those of us who were raised Catholic, we had to sit through the entire Mass pretty much since birth. Most Christian denominations actually send the kids away during the service for Sunday school to keep them occupied and to help them understand why they're there in the first place. So imagine being a little kid and being expected to sit still and keep quiet when you don't even understand what the hell is going on. I remember as a little kid hoping that somebody would acknowledge that I was good in church. These days, (laughs) I'm probably worse than I ever was as a little kid. But let me go through what's in a typical Sunday Mass, and uh, I'll go over my observations while I'm at it. Well, actually, before I get into that, I'll use the term Sunday Mass liberally. Because in the Catholic Church, you can fulfill your Sunday obligation by going to the Saturday Vigil, as they call it. If memory serves me right, I was taught that officially the Saturday Mass counts as long as the sun has started to set, but usually the Saturday Mass can start anywhere between 4 and, say, 5.30, which in the summer is well before dark. In my family, we usually did Saturday Mass. Most parishes also offer multiple masses on Sunday, usually two or three in the morning, occasionally one in the evening. Protestants sometimes give Catholics a hard time about that because, well, apparently going to worship should not be convenient. You're supposed to schedule your life around your religion, not the other way around. But hey, judge not, right? Mass consists of uh, a bunch of readings, long and rambling prayers, hymns, and a sermon, or homily as we call it. You can follow the proceedings of the Mass in a book called a missalette. Typically, a Mass lasts about eh, 50-ish minutes. When you walk in before Mass starts, it's not unusual for the organist or music group doing the hymns to play some music before Mass starts. This is especially true on Christmas. This past Christmas, at the Christmas Eve service, the music group did a bunch of Christmas songs before Mass. The leader announced that they were going to sing a song in Latin for you purists out there, and I quote The song was called In Terra Pax, which means on earth peace. What they didn't count on was that you have purists, and then you have purists like me. I noticed the phrase Dona Nobis Pacem. Now, when I took Latin in high school, despite going to a Catholic school, I was taught Classical Latin, the version of Latin that the ancient Romans spoke. The Latin that's the official language of the Vatican is often called Ecclesiastical Latin, which is pretty much the same as Classical Latin, but some pronunciation was changed, along with some very minor grammar points. If what I'm told is true, the reason that the Church changed the way Latin was spoken— was to make it a bit more similar to Italian, which of course begs the question, why not just make Italian the official Vatican language? But anyway, in true Latin, dona, D-O-N-A, isn't even a word. The actual word is da, D-A. And a Roman wouldn't say pacem. A Roman would say pacem because there's no such thing as a soft C in Latin, which means that uh, when Caesar, or is it Chasar? No, Kaisar. <laughs> that means that Kaisar, <laughs> Julius Kaisar, <laughs> he sounded like he conquered Hawaii. He would have said, weeny, weedy, weeky, not veeny, veeny, vici." Uh, uh, anywho, let's get back to the Mass, shall we? When it is time for the Mass to start, the cantor, or lead singer if there's a musical group, will announce that Mass is about to start, and you'll be told to welcome the celebrant father or whoever, (laughs) and please join in the singing of some boring hymn. The congregation stands. If the music is simply an organ with a cantor, the cantor will extend his or her hand palm up toward you in basically a gesture of saying, START SINGING NOW! You'll think you're back in 4th grade music class, 99 times out of 100 that'll be a priest, will walk up the aisle accompanied by a couple of acolytes. But We used to call them altar boys, but in recent years, girls have been allowed to join, so now you can have altar girls. Whatever the gender, the all-around term is acolyte. Then again, there was Monsignor Seidel at St. Pat's in Joliet when I was a kid. He was so freaking old that it would take him about six hours to reach the altar, and in fact, the altar boys had to help him walk up. The opening hymn theoretically comes to an end when the priest reaches the altar but if they really want to bore you, then the priest will grab a can of incense, whatever you call those, a thing and a chain that goes clank-clank. Uh, he'll grab one of those, or he'll sprinkle holy water on the congregation a few times, necessitating that there will be an eighth verse sung of what usually proves to be the most boring hymn ever. Whenever the hymn does come to an end, the priest will kick off the Mass with the sign of the cross. He then says something along the lines of, The Lord be with you. Or sometimes something a lot more rambling, depending on how much the priest loves to hear his voice. Now, this is where they trap you if you haven't been to church regularly in the last several years. Since Vatican II, the congregation would respond in glorious unified monotony, and also with you. However, in 2008, there were some minor changes made in parts of the Mass. Back when the Mass was delivered in Latin, the priest would say Dominus Vobiscum. Well, that's the fake pronunciation again. It should be Wobiskum. Anyway, that literally means the Lord be with you, and the correct response would be et cum spiritu tuo, which means and with your spirit. Well, in 2008, the Mass was changed so that prayers and responses would now be literal translation from the original Latin equivalents. So now... When the priest says, the Lord be with you, you're supposed to respond, and with your spirit. Eleven years later, there are still people who can't get out of the and also with you habit. They're usually the ones who haven't been to church regularly for quite a while. The priest may say a few words, and depending on what time of year it is, the congregation might recite a prayer officially called Confiteor. It's the first of several long prayers that people say with oh so much gusto, basically saying, I sinned, and I hope everybody under and above the sun can forgive me. Uh, Note to the Pope when the next Vatican Council happens. There. I just took a long prayer and reduced it to a sentence that says the exact same thing. You're welcome. Next, you have the priest waxing religiously philosophical for a sentence or two, to which the congregation responds, Lord, have mercy. More waxing, and this time the people say, Christ, have mercy. And once again, a third waxing, and the congregation falls back to, Lord, have mercy. If the priest isn't feeling very talkative, he will not do the aforementioned waxing, but just lead the people into saying the have mercy phrases with nothing in between. And again, they are just so enthusiastic to say these phrases. Interestingly, back before Vatican II, the responses would be, Kyrie eleison and Christie eleison, which was Greek. Yeah, Greek. I I don't understand why the Mass was Latin except for those sentences, but what do I know? I'm just a schnook. And coming up next, you have the Gloria, another long, rambling prayer recited enthusiastically by the congregation. Sometimes the Gloria is actually sung, and quite often that version isn't in the missalette or hymnal, which means that if you hadn't been to church for a while, or you are visiting from another parish— You'll have no idea what's going on. Then the priest says a little prayer, and the congregation says Amen, and sits down for what we call the Liturgy of the Word, the portion of the Mass that involves Biblical readings. They're just short passages, uh, at least you hope. Once in a while, the missalette will have portions of the text bracketed, with a footnote saying that the text in brackets may be omitted. So, what determines whether the bracketed text will be omitted? Well, from my experience, usually the age of whoever is doing the reading. Typically, the older the reader, the less likely the text will be omitted. The first reading comes from the Old Testament, and at the end of the reading, the lector says, the word of the Lord, to which the congregation responds, as monotonously as possible, thanks be to God. Then there's a responsorial psalm. The psalms are basically done in the form of the most dreary, boring hymns you'll ever hear. The cantor sings what are essentially verses and then extends a hand palm up to tell you SING RIGHT NOW when it's time for the response. Next is the second reading, which is one of the non-gospel books from the New Testament. As with the first reading, at the end, the lector says the word of the Lord and the congregation says thanks be to God. After the second reading, the congregation stands and we have the Alleluia which 999 out of a thousand times is sung. Usually you sing the word Alleluia a few times, followed by the cantor singing a short verse, then you repeat that Alleluia chorus. During Lent, though, there's no Alleluia because in the context of Catholicism, Christ's kingdom has arrived thanks to his resurrection. But during Lent, because the service is commemorating the time leading up to Christ's death, and ergo the resurrection hadn't yet happened, there is no kingdom, so there's no Alleluia. It's replaced with something else. In my experience, it's almost always been um, some kind of recitation or singing based around the sentence, glory and praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Then the priest will say the Lord be with you. And then the congregation responds and also, uh, excuse me, um, and with your spirit, the priest then says a reading from the Holy gospel, according to either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now here's something I could never master. The congregation responds, glory to you, Lord, and at the same time, you're supposed to take your thumb and kind of draw an imaginary cross on your forehead, your lips, and your chest. This is supposed to mean, the words of the gospel are in my mind, my words, my heart, subway walls, and tenement halls, and whatever. Uh, That is, assuming I remember my Catholic education correctly. I could never time it so that I wouldn't be saying the response while crossing my lips, so it always sounds something like, glory to you, After the priest, or sometimes the deacon actually, reads the gospel, he'll say the gospel of the Lord, to which the congregation responds, any guesses? No, no, not thanks be to God, but praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and as usual, as soporifically as humanly possible. Then everybody sits down. The next item on the mass agenda is what most Christian denominations consider the main reason for going to church, the sermon which Catholics call the homily. Ah, yes, the homily. You never knew what you were in for with the homily. Technically, it's supposed to be about the readings in the Mass. Quite often, the priest will tell an anecdote or a personal life story and tie it in with one or more readings. If anything particularly special is happening, such as maybe a couple renewing their wedding vows, that's usually done during the homily. If the Mass is celebrated specifically for children, the priest will usually come down from the altar and talk directly to the kids, and hopefully base the homily in a way that kids can, well, be bored as little as possible. Speaking as someone who attended many Masses during the Catholic school day, I can tell you that the, uh, as little as possible is a very, very hard thing to do. <laughs> I think I've seen a pretty wide variety of homilies. I remember one time when it was a particularly hot day back when I lived in A, the priest saying Mass at Maternity BVM, which was not air-conditioned at the time, just said, it's too hot today, so we're not going to have a homily. Now, while I and many others appreciated uh, that we wouldn't be kept in church for all that long because of the heat, uh, I do realize it kind of defeats the whole purpose of going to church, but I wasn't going to complain. When Lisa and I still lived in New Jersey, we went to a very modern parish, a parish that was founded after Vatican II and was very progressive. So progressive that most of the parishioners were refugees from other parishes and were fed up with the Catholic Church in general. I remember one weekend when our pastor was away, there was a substitute. And the substitute, by the way, I think is now the pastor over there. But anyway, he talked about his involvement with the jello wrestling match when he was in college. And uh, given how unusual the parish over at St. Anselm is, nobody batted an eye about this. Then you have the other extreme. When the priest who was pastor at St. Pat's and Joliet, when I moved to New Jersey, retired, the new pastor, shortly after he took over, took it upon himself to spend the entire homily bashing his predecessor, which didn't endear him to many of the parishioners. And in my opinion, whether or not there was reason to bash somebody, Doing that during the homily or any other part of the church service is extremely inappropriate. Now, I was always under the impression that the homily was well thought out and researched, but, well, let me tell you what happened one Christmas. When Lisa and I were registered as parishioners at St. Anselm back in New Jersey, I joined the men's folk group where I was designated to play bass. We played the Christmas Eve Mass one year Lisa didn't go to church with me as she was already planning to join her mother for Mass the next day at her old parish, Holy Innocence. Now, even though going to Mass on Christmas Eve fulfills your Christmas obligation, I still went with Lisa and her mom the next day, and I swear to, well, whatever you want me to swear to, the homily I heard at Holy Innocence was the exact same homily I heard the evening before at St. Anselm, The same one! And... (laughs) Those of you who are not Catholic, the readings are scheduled well in advance by the church itself. That it, by the church, I mean, say, the Catholic church as a whole, not the parish. So it's not that the pastor actually selects them. There is a set schedule for every single day of the year. But the same homily, which makes me think there must be some sort of big book of homilies or something. Now, I'm not saying this happens every week, I've heard enough homilies that sounded too personal to have been prefab. But it just sort of—I don't—irked me that it happens at all. But having said that, there's one surefire sign you'll be sitting there for a long homily if the priest begins the homily with the sign of the cross. Oh, let me tell you, if Monsignor Seidel were saying mass, you were in for a talk that was very long and very boring. No anecdotes, no personal stories relating to the readings. No jello wrestling, no nothing. Even if it were a children's mass, nope. The man had no sense for when children were present, and he just assumed that the homilies were one-size-fits-all. So he would start, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in the first reading today, we see that... uh, And you just desperately try to hold on until you finally hear the sign of the cross that ends the homily. Then you breathe a sigh of relief, stand up, and with the rest of the congregation recite the Nicene Creed, another long rambling prayer, half of which fell victim to the verbiage change of 2008. And as with most of the rest of the stuff you're supposed to say in Mass, the more inflection you put into it, the more wrong you're doing it. The prayer of the faithful is next. Usually this means that the lector or priest will read a series of items along the lines of, for the people of our church, that they may live in the spirit of the Lord and other crap like that, possibly with the word holy, etc., 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 we pray to the Lord. Usually the congregation responds, with uh, the enthusiasm of a stone teenager, Lord, hear our prayer. Sometimes, though, they throw in a different response, and I'm convinced that the only reason for making the response something different is to just be different. If the response is not, Lord, hear our prayer, then whoever is reading the petitions, as they're also called, will say what the response is. Sometimes it's simple, like maybe, Lord hear us, but other times it's so long and elaborate that you forget what the response is. After all the petitions are read, the congregation is asked to offer up their own petitions in silence. Now, at St. Anselm in New Jersey, they do things differently. Instead of the lector or priest reading the petitions, the petitions were actually handed out to random people in the congregation as they walked in. And they say, hey, could you read this when we go over the petitions? So each petition during the prayer of the faithful would come from a different part of the church. And instead of asking that personal petitions be offered in silence, the priest would usually say, for what else should we pray? And that opened the floor to people to actually say out loud what they wanted people to pray for, like a sick relative, upcoming surgery, stuff you typically hear of people praying for. One time when New Jersey was going through a nasty drought, one parishioner answered the for-what-else-should-we-pray question with, RAIN, WE PRAY TO THE LORD! At the Mass we folk group people played on December 2nd, 2001, someone said George Harrison, to which Father Bob nodded in agreement. I remember as a lector in high school at uh, Joliet Catholic, I was assigned to read the petitions for one of our school Masses, but um, I totally missed my cue. My mind was so set on the word petitions that I totally lost the connection between petitions and prayer of the faithful. So when Father Jim announced the prayer of the faithful, there was awkward silence as I did not take my place at the podium. So Father Jim walked over to the podium and said, I have been called. And then he read the petitions. Yeah, I uh, felt stupid. But anyway, that's the end of the Liturgy of the Word, and we now sit down and go into the Liturgy of the Eucharist. It begins with the priest or perhaps designated volunteers from the congregation bringing communion wafers and the wine ingredients to the priest, who will then mix the wine ingredients right there at the altar. The wafers and wine mix are called gifts for some reason. Usually there's a hymn called the Offertory Hymn when this stuff happens, but if there isn't, The priest recites a little passage to which you're supposed to respond with the vigor of a DMV worker, blessed be God forever. The congregation then stands up again while the priest says a few things, including asking the congregation that the gifts that are to be sacrificed are acceptable to the Almighty Father. And then the congregation says with all the excitement of a C-SPAN broadcast, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. Uh, The word holy was one of the additions made in 2008, so there's another part in which you could detect people who haven't been to church in a while. Anyway, regarding that, my thought was always, well, if we sacrifice something decent instead of bad-tasting wine and dry-ass wafers, we wouldn't need to pray that God's going to accept the sacrifice. Um, Anyway, uh, the priest will say a little prayer over the gifts, and then the congregation kneels, assuming the church has kneelers. Uh, The only church I've been to without kneelers was St. Anselm. It is acceptable to sit if you're not comfortable kneeling. And I think that's one thing you have in Catholic services, that you don't have in other denominations. All this sitting, standing, kneeling, sometimes bowing, depending on the time of year and whether it's raining in Truth or Consequences New Mexico or something. I have a Protestant friend who once, when talking about the Catholic Mass, told me, if I want a 60-minute workout, I'll join a gym. But anyway, back to this kneeling business. It's now time for the Eucharistic prayer, which is basically a retelling of the story of the Last Supper. There are four different Eucharistic prayers, and I think Eucharistic prayer number two is the shortest one. If it begins, Lord, you are holy indeed, the fountain of all holiness, then you're in luck, it's the short one. And usually that's the one they use, I'd say about uh, 999 times out of a thousand. I think the longer ones are for super special occasions. Beware, though, if you hear a mention of Linus, you're going to be on your knees for a long time. During the Eucharistic prayer, the priest invokes the diocese's bishops and the Pope. When I was a kid in the Joliet Diocese, it was something like, Remember Lord John Paul, our Pope, Joseph, our Bishop, and his assistants Raymond and Roger? Now, John Paul II died in 2005. He became Pope in 1978. So for a pretty big chunk of my life, he was the Pope. To this day, it sounds weird hearing something else. I never got used to hearing a priest say, Benedict, our Pope... And at Christmas Eve Mass this year, when the priest said, Francis, our Pope, Lisa and I looked at each other and mouthed, who? Because we still expect it to be John Paul. I remember when I was a little kid, I noticed that in the missalette, the text actually said, N, our Pope, N, our Bishop. And I always wondered why the priest wasn't saying N. Uh, Yes, Jim, if you're listening, I've always been a literalist. During the Eucharistic prayer, the priest takes what we call the host, which I guess might be the master communion wafer, I don't know, but it's a large wafer that he breaks into pieces. Some of those pieces are distributed as part of communion. He quotes Jesus and says something along the lines of, take this all of you and eat it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. At some parishes, an altar server will ring a set of hand chimes at this particular moment. I like to think of it this way. It's like a magic show, and the chimes represent a puff of smoke or something. Poof! Well, in Catholic school, we're taught that it's, well, essentially a magic show. Uh, My words, not theirs. We are taught that at that moment, the host and the communion wafers given to the congregation literally become the actual body of Christ. And this is what they call transubstantiation. Anybody who went to Catholic school long enough hears a rumor about a crazed gunman opening a fire in a church somewhere in South America or somewhere else far away, and a communion wafer that got hit by a bullet started to bleed. Yeah. But anyway, the same thing happens with that terrible church wine. The priest says, take this all of you and drink it, for this is my blood which shall be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven, do this in memory of me. Again, you might hear chimes. And again... We Catholic school veterans are taught that at this point, transubstantiation happens again, ergo the wine literally becomes Christ's blood. Hocus Pocus. Well, actually, um, the story about the phrase Hocus Pocus used as a common, uh, uh proverbial magic word supposedly comes from the original Latin mass in the Catholic church when the priest says Hocus Corpus meum," meaning this is my body. So people say, oh, I don't need any of that hocus pocus. So that's kind of where that comes from. Allegedly, I think that has been uh, debunked, but I'm not sure. Anyway, the priest ends the magic show by saying or chanting, usually at an inconsistent pace or an overdramatic proclamation of worship, followed usually by the singing of a few preset verses. One of those possible verses actually sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon commercial. What with the words, he is joy for all ages. After that, the congregation stands and recites the Lord's Prayer. It was never really explained to me why, but it's not uncommon for some people to join hands for the prayer. Lisa often talks about how her father would try to make her laugh by saying, but deliver us from evil. But regardless, after that line, the priest says a short bit about forgiveness and peace, and then the congregation responds with that little bit that begins, for the kingdom, the power, blah blah blah, and those who have joined hands often raise them for some reason. Speaking of joining hands, the next part of the Mass is, without a doubt, the ultimate nightmare of introverts and germaphobes, the sign of peace. This is when the congregation is invited to, quote, show each other some sign of peace, which uh, ends up usually being a handshake. It used to be called the kiss of peace way back before I could even remember, because it wasn't uncommon to exchange a friendly social kiss. It's certainly the most awkward moment of the Mass for me, that's for sure. Whose hand do I shake first? What if I happen to turn away to shake someone's hand when someone else is offering me a hand and I look like a standoffish jerk? How far should I reach? Should I offer a handshake to the lady two pews in front of me? Can I just flash two fingers to someone to indicate peace? (sighs) I only pray that the organist or music group hurries up and gets the Lamb of God thing started so this ends or the priest leads the recitation of the Lamb of God if it's not sung. Ah, Lamb of God, in which twice you ask for mercy, and then you ask for peace. And when that's done, the congregation kneels and waits to be ushered to the communion line. Now, here's how communion works in the Catholic Church. There are usually two hymns sung during communion, or if the congregation is particularly large or they just want to take up more of your time, there could be a third song. You get in line, and when you get up front, you either cup your hands or open your mouth. If you cup your hands, it's an indication that you wish to be handed the wafer, or as was usually the case at St. Anselm, actual bread, and you feed yourself. If you open your mouth and extend your tongue a little bit, you are telling the person, I'm not putting that thing in my mouth, that's your job! The priest or Eucharistic minister will say the body of Christ, and you respond, Amen. You are then given the wafer. I always, always opted to be handed the host. But uh, the one time I got communion from Monsignor Seidel, it was apparent to me that when he was in seminary back in 1742, he was told, Just put it in everybody's mouth. My mouth was not even open, yet he tried to shove the damn thing in my mouth. Oh, God. If you so desire, you can also step to the side and get a sip of wine, courtesy of a Eucharistic minister, deacon, or another priest. You are told, Receive the cup of the Lord. And you respond, Amen, and you drink from the cup, like a couple of sips. And don't worry, you know it's safe to drink from the same cup that everybody else has been drinking from, because after every drink, the Eucharistic minister quickly wipes a spot of the chalice with a napkin, ensuring total, complete sanitization. Then you go back to your seat, kneel, and meditate. And of course, you have to time yourself so that when you stop kneeling and you sit back in the pew, that you don't back into the person behind you who might still be kneeling and have his or her arms and elbows on the back of the pew. And uh, there are certain rules with receiving communion in the Catholic Church. First of all, you have to be Catholic, and you have to have officially made your first communion sacrament. I remember how one of my non-Catholic classmates at St. Pat's didn't know how the Mass worked, and she ended up getting in the communion line, and ergo got communion. Oh man, Sister Loretta the Principal gave her a severe tongue-lashing for doing that. Because, huh, if you're not Catholic, you keep your ass in that pew during communion. Also, if you're in mortal sin, you're not allowed to get communion until you go to confession and wipe that mortal sin off your soul. Which, of course, brings the question, what is mortal sin? Ask that and you'll get a vague answer that probably involves the phrase grievous offense, and uh, if you die with mortal sin on your soul, you go to hell. And that's even if you get killed in a car accident as you're driving to confession with the intent of wiping away that sin on your soul, because intending to do a good thing doesn't count. Ah, thanks for that wisdom, Miss Rob, my religion teacher in sixth grade. Uh, it's kind of strange, isn't it, that intending to do bad without actually doing the bad thing somehow counts as doing bad, but intending to do good, but... Ending up not being able to do good doesn't count. I think you're also not supposed to get communion if you missed Mass through your own fault, or maybe there's some kind of a three strikes rule or something, I don't know. 16 years of Catholic school didn't help me retain that rule. Look up the word communion in a dictionary and you'll see the words group, sharing, association, fellowship, basically the complete opposite of what these Catholic communion rules do. Now, the root of the word is union, and the com prefix indicates with. So communion means with union, right? But hey, I'm not some Vatican bigwig who comes up with these rules. I'm just a schnook. Just to give a little bit of contrast, every once in a while I play in uh, the band over at First Free Church of Chicago. It's an evangelical free church, and sometimes they have communion. And uh, how they do it is how I believe it's done in most Protestant faiths. They don't exclude anybody. If you're in the congregation, you get to participate. You'd be handed a small piece of cracker or bread and a thimble-sized cup of grape juice. Usually, you are asked to wait until everybody has their cracker or bread and juice so that in the spirit of communion, everybody would drink and eat at the same moment. So... Almost the exact opposite of what Catholics do, but getting back to the topic, if my dad and I went to Mass without my mom for whatever reason, she was out of town, sick in bed, whatever, he'd tell me, just head straight out to the car after communion. (laughs) In fact, I think he may have actually gone straight to the car when communion started. To this day, I don't think my mother knows about this. Now that I think of it, uh, if any of you happen to talk to my mom, please don't tell her what my dad used to do. Even all these years later, she'd kill him. (laughs) After communion, there may be a few announcements made, donuts in the fellowship room, upcoming meetings, things like that. And then you'd stand up for a final blessing from the priest. The last thing the priest says is something like, the Mass is ended, let us go in peace to serve the Lord. To which the congregation responds, thanks be to God. I always thought that was kind of weird, because essentially the interchange is saying, Mass is over, thank God. It's especially weird when the priest adds Alleluia, Alleluia to his The Mass is Ended spiel, to which you're supposed to respond, Thanks be to God, Alleluia, Alleluia, which uh, to me is saying, Holy shit, I'm so glad Mass is finally over. Then there's a closing hymn, and the priest and altar servers leave down the aisle, Those who are in a bit of a rush will leave as soon as the priest walks past the pew, while the more devoted will stay until the closing hymn is done. Whatever the case, the priest usually hangs out in the back, as if the congregation were his receiving line, and he'll shake hands or briefly chat with people as they leave. All this is usually done within about 50 minutes. Well, Sunday Masses specifically. There's a Mass every day of the year, and the non-Sunday Masses are usually much shorter. However, there is a major exception, and that is Easter Vigil. The Mass, the evening before Easter, that fulfills your Easter obligation. Uh, You can also go on Easter Sunday instead if you wish, but still. uh, Easter Vigil, oh my goodness, you will be there for about three hours. I remember one time at Easter Vigil Mass, my brother flipped through the missalette. He said, there are 30 pages allocated to this Mass, so if we go through each page in about a minute, we'll be out of here in half an hour. Sadly, that's not how it works. At all. One of the reasons Easter Vigil Mass is so long is that it starts with a service of light, as they call it. The priest lights the Paschal candle, and then smaller candles are lit off that big candle and handed out to the congregation with the church lights turned out. The priest will, as off-key as possible, chant Christ our light, to which the congregation responds in the same cadence. Then there's the Litany of Saints, in which the priest seemingly reads from the index of Butler's Lies of the Saints. Holy Repeat that for about 6,000 saints. And at the end of that, there's the cop-out. All holy men and women. Of course, why couldn't they just start with that and be done? Doesn't that include all the saints? Anyway, uh, also contributing to the seemingly unending Easter Vigil Mass, there are usually a group of adults who, at some point later on in life, after they were kids, they decided to convert to Catholicism. And the Easter Vigil Mass is when they make all three of their major sacraments to become fully Catholic—Baptism, First Communion, and Confirmation. It's probably a cool occasion for those who are joining the Church and their loved ones who are in attendance, but for schnooks like me who didn't have a dog in that race, it was torture, especially because we had to dress up for major holiday Masses. Oh, And uh, by we had to dress up, I mean my parents made me dress up. There was also one moment of deception in the Easter Vigil Mass that always got my hopes up. Those of you who are not Catholic, remember what I said about how the Liturgy of the Word has three main readings. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and then one from the Gospels. Well, what's the first thing that happens in the Easter Vigil Liturgy of the Word? The priest says, a reading from the Holy Gospel. Whoa! We're at the Gospel already! Uh, whoops. uh No. There are, I think, seven readings for the Mass, so no, the first two readings are not actually skipped. Probably when I was a teenager, my parents finally figured out that Easter Vigil is a freaking drag, so they changed their habit to going to Mass on Easter Sunday instead. Oh, those candles I mentioned that were distributed to the congregation. They're long, skinny white candles with a little cardboard disc at the bottom that's supposed to catch the dripping wax. Well, that disc is... Does nothing. Lisa and I both found out the hard way a few years ago during midnight mass one Christmas. We were handed lit candles as we walked in. Burning wax dripped completely missing the protective disc and landed on her hand, prompting her to say, and I quote, Then the same thing happened to me. Oh damn it! We uh no longer take candles when we go to church maybe that was punishment though because we're crappy catholics i don't know well i don't know if i want to say we're crappy catholics so uh, lisa always says i am a practicing catholic i'm just not good at it i can imagine someone hearing this might think i'm a terrible person for saying this stuff well whatever i mean you have to admit that when you think about it so much of it is questionable perhaps bizarre and quite frankly just plain old boring I mean, why does a worship service that's supposed to bring forth joy and worshiping a loving God have to be so bland and sometimes seemingly exclusive? Every year at St. Anselm, a gospel choir and their priest would come down from Newark and basically take over the church for Saturday Mass. It's as if you're at a Protestant service. Nobody's shy about yelling Amen or in other ways expressing their joy. Their priest, when he would start his homily, he would take out a little towel and rest it on his shoulder. This is a little white guy too, mind you. And he would start by saying, let the people say amen. And of course, everybody in the congregation is like, amen. And he says again, let me hear the saints of St. Anselm say amen. And he would get an applause after his homily. Why does this have to be an annual exception instead of the norm? It seems that churchgoers and other Christian denominations go to church because they want to. In the Catholic world, it's an obligation. In fact, they even use the word obligation when you have to go to church outside of the usual Sunday worship. Holy Day of Obligation. And it's quite interesting that such positive words are thrown around in the context of a Mass. Worship, of course. The priest celebrates Mass. It's hardly a celebration when the congregation has the enthusiasm of hibernating hedgehogs. Now, of course, I know the Catholic Church has bigger problems than making Mass a little bit more exciting, from the rather sexist attitudes all the way through the unspeakable crimes throughout its history. But I just wanted to address the peculiarities and idiosyncrasies that I and so many others have gone through, and maybe have some fun while we're at it. Speaking of having some fun, a few years ago, there was a brilliant sketch on Saturday Night Live, an advertisement for the St. Joseph's Christmas Mass Spectacular. I will link that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com, by the way. But so much of that thing is, it's funny because it's true. I only found two things wrong with it. For one thing, the building that they used for this uh, little thing they showed was much too small for a typical Catholic church. Also, there's a bit about getting a peek into the rectory when the priest opens the door to it, and they make it seem like it's just a simple setup. Oh, heck no! No, 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 no. I've been in several rectories in my life, and, well, one thing they had in common, they were all pretty snazzy. They all had large-screen TVs, wine racks, the works. Pretty freaking sweet. In fact, when uh, Lisa and I went to the rectory at St. Anselm's for a new parishioner welcome party, we walked in, and there was the TV tuned to a football game, and Father Bob having a pint of beer. Lisa says, well, what do you expect? I mean, after all, priests are guys. They're going to do guy stuff. That's true, I suppose. But, uh, let's change things a little bit now. Actually, let's change things a lot from the Catholic church to music. Yeah. Cause I love music and I got to talk about it every single time I do this podcast. Now, the next thing is going to go kind of a different way of how I, uh, did previous music for schnooks installments. Uh, I really don't quite know the best way to introduce this other than to say, just listen, I guess. Hey, I was just an ignorant college student. I didn't know I was doing anything illegal. It was at the Walworth County Fairgrounds in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, at the annual flea market, a gold mine if you were looking to add to your record collection for cheap prices, I think it was 1992 when I saw a box full of sealed copies of a Beatles album called Happy Micklemas. um, Misspelled is Michaelmas, by the way, but $3 a pop. It was on a label called the Adirondack Group. The contents? The Beatles fan club Christmas recordings from 1967 and later. Wow. I always wanted this stuff from something other than a recording I made from the radio. Cool. Hmm. Weird note on the back. The illustrations are a commercial concept for the album. Therefore, we are unable to say that the illustrations represent a completely accurate presentation of the recording artist as he has or does now appear. The album may contain previously recorded material. Uh, I did not read that wrong, by the way. It said the album may contain previously recorded material. Uh, I certainly hope it has previously recorded material. I can't imagine that as I spin the record, the artist will be recording that music on the fly just before the stylus hits the right part of the groove. But what I found curious was that sentence about the illustrations. What illustrations? The cover was just text. Curiously, it didn't have the word Beatles anywhere. Just... John, Paul, George, Ringo, in large red letters, and Happy Michaelmas, actually, in smaller green text below it. The phrase Happy Michaelmas, by the way, comes from Paul McCartney's contribution to one of the Beatles' Christmas recordings. It was 69, I think? I think it was that one. Uh, Oh, well. Happy New Year, Happy Christmas, Happy Easter, Happy Autumn, Happy Michaelmas, everybody, Happy Christmas, everybody to you. Uh, But anyway, later that summer, I went to a record show at a Holiday Inn on a frontage road in Joliet. I found a few cool gems to add to my collection, including another piece of Beatles vinyl that seemed odd to me, but also had some stuff I had on cassette that I recorded off the radio. Another upgrade! This one was called Withered Beatles, and its cover was a parody of the cover of With The Beatles, the Beatles' second album. The difference is that the picture has artists' conceptions of the Beatles as old men. Hmm, interesting that the cover of this album might actually theoretically be what the liner of Happy Micklemiss was referring to, but it's a different label, claiming to be Apple Records, but the record labels themselves actually said Rubber Soul, and the official name of this label was Sapcor, S-A-P-C-O-R. Regardless, I paid $18 for this mysterious album, Withered Beatles, which was a two-record set, and it was a hodgepodge collection of various 1962 and 1963 recordings by the Beatles, including Besame Mucho and How Do You Do It, recorded at EMI Studios shortly after they were signed to the Parlophone label. Another one of the tracks was the 1963 Christmas Fan Club recording. Ooh, perfect, that's one more that I now have on record and don't have to worry about listening to on tape that I got from the radio. Also on the album were some gems the band had recorded for BBC Radio, A Shot of Rhythm and Blues, Soldier of Love, Some Other Guy, and the Lennon-McCartney original I'll Be On My Way, which they never recorded as the Beatles, an informal studio recording. And there were other things too on that. Oh, I was so happy to have this record. Now I could hear this stuff without radio interference, DJ voiceovers, and other artifacts that came with homemade cassette recordings. Speaking of BBC Radio, the wonder of finding unreleased Beatles songs became a digital reality to me when I stumbled upon someone selling a CD that, once again, didn't have the name Beatles on it, but instead the artist was listed as the Fab Four. The name of the CD was Radioactive Volume 3, on a label called Pyramid Records. The front cover had the note, a series of vintage radio recordings, for serious collectors only. On that disc were three episodes of the BBC program Pop Go the Beatles, including the one broadcast on July 16, 1963, which is perhaps the best of all the Beatles' BBC broadcasts. That particular one included the Beatles doing uh, Elvis's That's Alright, Chuck Berry's Carol, and Carl Perkins's Lend Me Your Comb. It was a great show, and I was thrilled to have it on CD. Lend me your comb. It's time to go home. They gotta come past. My hair is a mess. But what was up with it? It was a very weird CD. I've never seen it anywhere else before. Surely it can't be illegal. I mean, how would you go about making bootleg CDs? Mind you folks, home CD burners didn't exist yet. Certainly, if you wanted to have this music pressed professionally, you'd be stopped in your tracks, right? Right? So, what on earth were these magical records and compact discs? Where did they come from? Where can I find more without accidentally stumbling on them? My peers told me they're bootlegs, and that they're pretty easy to find. (laughs) Really? Geez, why did I never see such things at Crow's Nest, the local store whose closure in 2005 still hurts my soul? If there was one place within 50 miles that would have anything cool, it would be Crow's Nest. And my friends that had Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd bootlegs told me they sure did get them at Crow's Nest. Wait, what, what? What are you talking about? Just to make sure that maybe Crow's Nest only carried Zeppelin and Pink Floyd compact discs of dubious legality... I went to Crow's Nest and looked through the corresponding sections. Nope, just the usual stuff. Uh, Although it did occur to me, however, they still didn't have a copy of Pink Floyd's one good album, so I bought the Piper of the Gates of Dawn on CD while I was there. Yeah, I said it. And I stand by what I said. (laughs) Anyway, there was nothing under the Beatles except the usual outdated Beatles CDs with the 1987 mastering. Certainly, I wasn't going to ask anybody working there if they had bootleg CDs. I mean, what am I, dumb? Do I think they're dumb enough to admit it, especially given that Crow's Nest already got into hot water for selling alleged drug paraphernalia? I'd better just keep my trap shut. Wait a minute, what's this? Oh, there's a section called Imports. Hmm. Eh, it's probably just some European pressings and compilations of the usual stuff. Wait a minute, this is interesting. What's this Beatles CD in a slimline cardboard package? in the Imports section. Unsurpassed Masters Volume 1, 1962-1963. Yellow Dog Records, apparently out of Luxembourg, hence the import status. What's this? Whoa, a besame mucho. How do you do it? Songs from Please Please Me with... take numbers attached? <gasps> Holy crap, yep, this is it. Bootleg payload. Oh, there's a Volume 2 as well. But wow, these things cost almost 30 bucks a pop. Uh, I'm just going to take one. I'll come back after my next payday for another one. But I remember that night very well. It was my junior year of college, fall semester 1994. It was a very rainy night. In case you didn't hear my episode on college football, I worked for my college's football team. We had just gotten back from a road trip to Michigan where we played against Midland University. It was our only win that season. I was already feeling pretty good, finally watching the team win a game. Being a commuter student, I lived at home, but the parents were away for a few days, so I got the house and car all to myself. So I went home, put on some dry clothes, and went to Crow's Nest. When I got home, I dried the rain off again and changed into sweatpants and a t-shirt. I popped open the sharp CD player I got for Christmas almost four years prior, and put the silk-screened Beatles bootleg, or beatleg as many fans say. Into the CD player and listen to Besseme Mucho and How Do You Do It, finally on a medium that wasn't a potentially crackly record or a recording taped off the radio. And then, there's a place from the Please Please Me sessions. Not a groundbreaking song by any means, but holy sh, it sounded fantastic. Beautiful stereo, and in terms of audio fidelity, incalculably better sounding than the actual official Please Please Me CD, which was in mono and in desperate need of a remaster. STUNNING! A place now, that wasn't go. really my first intentional journey into underground music. What I'm going to do at this point is just kind of drop in some anecdotes that I remember from what I consider my heyday of collecting this underground music, starting with August 1993. I was taking a deep dive into the Beach Boys after hearing their Good Vibrations box set that was released that summer. I discovered the Surf's Up mailing list, an online Beach Boys discussion forum that happens over a weekly email digest. You'd communicate with other members of the forum by sending an email to a master address, and then your email message would be added to the digest. Could you imagine Facebook comments that become visible only once a week? Well, one of the members, a gent around my age, and his name was Dave Procopi, was advertising his tape sets that he sold, usually 20 to $25 each, depending on the set. He had a tape set covering Beatles' studio sessions, and also for the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds album, and their Unfinished Smile album. Now, after hearing all the hype about Smile, I was really looking forward to hearing the outtakes that were included in the Good Vibrations box set, but I was actually left disappointed. The music sounded unfinished and unpolished at best. At worst, it sounded like it was composed and recorded by a disturbed man. But one thing I still wanted to hear that was conspicuously absent from the SMILE material on that box set. Fire. SMILE was to include a four-part suite called the Elements, in which each part would represent an ancient element, earth, air, fire, or water. The fire piece was legendary. Brian Wilson claimed that the day he recorded it, a building not far from the studio burned down, and it freaked him out. He thought that the music he made caused that fire to happen. Now, I should probably mention he was really getting into a lot of drugs back then, too. The fire tape could be heard in the documentary The Beach Boys, an American band. At the time, the current version of the documentary had that music removed, allegedly at the demand of Brian himself but I needed to hear that music. And Dave's Smile tape set had it. These tape sets were basically compilations made from various bootleg CDs, and made specifically for people who didn't have the money to shell out $25 to $30 per disc for a bootleg. When the two-tape set arrived, uh, some people listening might be thinking, wait a minute, I remember that being a three-tape set. (laughs) Well, when I got it, it was only two tapes. He didn't expand it to a third tape until a few years later. But anyway, I found that Dave's tape set was about as bootleg as you can get. It was just two Maxell XL2 tapes, each with a small sticky note labeling Tape 1 and Tape 2, and there were also extensive photocopied liner notes. I listened to fire and… Oh, it scared the crap out of me. And I was listening on a bright, sunny afternoon. I can only imagine how freaked out I would have been had I listened in the dark instead. I could totally understand why Brian would be freaked out that his own music was so powerful. Speaking of Maxell XL2 tapes, that's how many of us traded back then. Cassette tapes. Again, bootleg CDs cost upwards of $30 each, and especially because so many of us were college students, we couldn't buy a heck of a lot of these Dutch imports, as they're sometimes called. <laughs> wonder how Procopi was able to afford the collection he had. <laughs> We'd swap lists online and make deals. A very common type of trade was a two-for-one trade, meaning that if you wanted something off someone's list but you didn't have anything the other person wanted, then for every tape of that person's that you wanted with music, you would send two tapes. And it had to be a decent cassette too, not one of those cheapo bag of tapes you can find at the Walgreens Impulse boxes by the checkout. One of the most popular brands was Maxell, with the XL2 being very common. There was a time when Maxell had a rewards program called Max Points. Maxell products, including audio cassettes, video cassettes, floppy disks, would come with stickers with a certain number of Max Points that you could stick onto a form that you could get by contacting Maxell. And then you could redeem those Max Points for different rewards. And because we traders knew that we would continue to be making tapes and doing trades, most of us redeemed our Max Points for more audio cassettes, the cheapest thing in the Max Points catalog. There were people who racked up enough points to get literally hundreds of audio cassettes, and that's exactly what we did. And we found out the hard way that, um, the folks at the Maxell Redemption Center must have already pre-packaged every single item in the catalog, one by one, just so they could slap a label and postage on the products and get them out right away. I repeat, one by one, each product in separate packages. Which meant that if you redeem points for, say, three items, you would get three packages in the mail instead of just one master package with three items inside it. Which also meant that many bootleg traders received upwards of 200 individual packages in the mail. No, they didn't just take the tapes and put them in a box. They had each tape in its own separate mailer. So yeah, many traders reported how pissed off their carriers were. Mine, however, he was pretty cool. He just delivered the tapes in a couple of those plastic USPS bins with the handles. He said, yeah, just give them back when you're done. Meanwhile, I had to deal with disposing of several dozen padded cardboard envelopes, each containing a Maxell XL2 cassette. I went to BeetleFest for the first time in 1996 at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. As of 2003, however, BeetleFest had been renamed the Fest for Beatles fans, but I'm just going to call it BeetleFest just to keep it simple. But anyway, one of the features of BeetleFest is the marketplace. All kinds of vendors selling Beatles souvenirs, Beatles paraphernalia, you might see handcrafted arts. You'll see Beatles official CDs. Uh, Beetlefest itself is the biggest vendor and they are the biggest authorized reseller of Beatles products. But anyway, many vendors sold just miscellaneous records and tapes and stuff. And it was not uncommon to see a box full of these wonderful imported Luxembourg CDs. I saw that Yellow Dog logo so much and it was just amazing that I now had access to so many of these things. I think I bought five bootleg CDs my first time at BeetleFest. They were all on the Yellow Dog label. Sunday was great though because on Sundays, dealers who want to sell off as much as they can without having to drag all of it back home, sometimes literally across the country, they would reduce their prices. I saw one dealer with a box full full of Beatles bootleg CDs, mostly on Yellow Dog labels, and they were $15 a pop. Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I only bought one from her, though. But I was curious, how are these dealers able to sell this stuff right out in the open at a Beatles convention that is attended by thousands of people? So I asked the dealer, I said, how are you able to do this and not get busted or anything? And she looked at me and said, I'm a girl. I don't know anything. Somebody just gave me these CDs and told me they're cool and that I should sell them. (sighs) I said, oh, I I get it. She said, yep, I'm just a girl. I don't know anything. I picked the wrong person to ask, I guess. Keeping in mind, though, the treasure trove of bootleg CDs that one could find at BeetleFest. Over the next year, just at random times, I would toss a $20 bill into a junk drawer. Just to save up for Beatlefest, specifically for bootleg CDs. By the time Beatlefest rolled around again in 1997, I saved up $300. $300, which could get you anywhere from 10 to 20 of those bootleg CDs. When it was time for Beatlefest again, Yellow Dog had evolved into a new label called Midnight Beat, and I bought a CD called "Gone Tomorrow Here Today," which was White Album sessions. There was another CD from Repro Man Records. Repro Man was a label that basically copied the Midnight Beat CDs, and I bought their version of the Beatles' Hollywood Bowl shows. All three concerts in pristine quality. Wow. And Repro Man turned out to be a division of a bigger bootleg label called Vigatone. And Vigatone was another big name. They had all kinds of good studio-quality recordings of the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, I think. John Lennon and they had all kinds of spin-off labels Spank, Pegboy, and I'm sure there were others but I can't think of them right now. Uh the person behind the Vigatone label was busted I think in 2002 was it? And uh, they turned out to be based in Louisiana. That's where the bust happened. Speaking of Pegboy, I bought a CD at Beatlefest called It's Not Too Bad which was nothing but Strawberry Fields Forever throughout the whole CD, it was tracing the evolution from demo stage to final product, and it was a great, wonderful listen, hearing one of the Beatles' most amazing songs take shape. Over the years, finding bootlegs at Beatlefest became harder and harder because Mark Lepido, who's in charge of the fest, would be more and more careful about allowing people doing that. He didn't want people to get busted and he didn't want to get in trouble, so he had a very strict no bootlegs policy. Didn't mean you couldn't find them at all. If you said the right thing to a dealer, the dealer might look around side by side and pull out a little shoebox and present it to you and ask you if anything looks interesting to you. Other times, somebody might write a number on a sticky note and hand it to you. That was their hotel room number. In the times that I'd go up to that room number, I'd usually walk in, and there were two or three TVs set up with VCRs, and there'd be all kinds of videos for sale. And, of course, the beds were outlined in CD crates. I don't think I ever bought anything from one of these secret hotel room vendors, mainly because they were way overpriced, in my opinion. Not worth it. I've found that in more recent years, you're more likely to find Beatles bootlegs on vinyl at the fest than you would CDs. I guess partly because most Beatles bootlegs on vinyl are so old that no one's going to get busted for selling them. They came out back in the 70s and 80s. While CDs are a little bit newer, a little bit more easy to bust somebody over, I think. And maybe statute of limitations has something to do with it. I don't know. I don't know. There's a particular Brian Wilson concert that was traded in bootleg circles back in 2000. That was the second year that Brian Wilson went out on the road. Even though he toured in 1999, it was still shocking that he would have a second tour. We all thought for sure that 1999 would be the one and only time we'd get to see him on the road. But nope, He's been on the road pretty consistently ever since, actually, to this day. But in 2000, he toured the Pet Sounds album. They played the entire Pet Sounds album with a symphony orchestra. Many of those concerts had been traded as bootleg tapes. Some on videotape, some on audio tape. There was a particular audio tape of the Hollywood Bowl concert from that tour. The guy who recorded it said that it was a good show, but unfortunately on the tape... The music is in competition with a couple of ass wipes nearby who wouldn't stop talking. They wouldn't shut up the whole show. And in Beach Boys fan discussions online, he would consistently refer to those ass wipes. Oh, the ass wipes did this. The ass wipes did that, etc., etc., etc. And if you looked at many fans' trade lists back then, possibly still now, I don't know, you would see sometimes a listing of different concerts that people had available for trade. And you would see Brian Wilson, the Hollywood Bowl 2000 Pet Sounds Concert. And then in parentheses, you would see Asswipe Tape. Everybody knew what that was. Of course, you had the professionally made bootlegs on the major bootleg labels. I mentioned Yellow Dog and Vigatone. You also had labels with names like The Swingin' Pig and Invasion Unlimited. Yellow Dog and Vegatone were the big players in the game, really. They had the best in terms of content and sound quality, usually. Invasion Unlimited, in my opinion, they had interesting variety but really crap sound quality. But then, as times and technology progressed, you started getting homegrown labels like Purple Chick Purple Chick would compile the best sounding of all the bootlegs and put them together in packages that made sense chronologically or categorically. And the cool thing about Purple Chick, they weren't for sale. They were free. You just had to trade for them. And if you wanted to put the CDs in their own cases, then you would print out the artwork yourself. And that kind of started off the revolution of, uh, I guess what I could call desktop bootlegging people making their own CDs at home. One in particular was somebody who went by the name Dr. Ebbets. His modus operandi was to take vinyl and do vinyl transfers at the best possible quality, especially for Beatles commercial releases, which kind of brings me to this. In the underground music world, there are three main categories, really. You have bootlegs, which are collections of unreleased recordings, whether it be studio tapes that kind of got smuggled out of the studio and copied, or recordings of concerts from people smuggling in recorders. The next level down is what's called a pirate. A pirate is an unauthorized copy of a previously released recording. And this is mainly what Dr. Ebbets did. He did pirates. And then you have counterfeits. Counterfeits are basically exact reproductions of actual commercial products, but they try to make you think they're the original. A classic example is Introducing the Beatles, released on VJ Records in January 1964. It is one of the most counterfeited albums in history. There are so many out there. If you find a copy of Introducing the Beatles out in the wild, chances are more likely than not that it's fake. But as for the pirates, as for the Dr. Ebbets pirates, the reason for those, I think it was the mid-2000s when Dr. Ebbets was at his prime, he would take the Beatles albums and convert them to CDs from fresh vinyl. He would open a fresh copy of the record, I think that's what he would do, he'd open a fresh copy of the record and immediately do a digital recording of that record And the reason for that was the Beatles material had not been remastered since 1987 and their CDs sounded very eh, not good, not good. And we wanted something better. Even a digital recording of those records sounded better than the official CDs. So he was there to fill that void. He did needle drops of all their British albums, mono and stereo, the US albums, mono and stereo. I'm pretty sure Dr. Ebbets did things other than the Beatles. I seem to remember he did a couple of Simon and Garfunkel titles, possibly some Beatles solo things too, maybe some Springsteen. I'm not sure 100%. And then even more homegrown, there was a Beatles bootleg discussion forum. And sometimes members of that forum would put together their own little bootleg collections. I remember there was one called Vinyl to the Core, So called because it compiled a lot of unreleased Beatles recordings that had been bootlegged on vinyl and other formats, but never on CD. So basically, they were making their CD debut on vinyl to the core. There was another collection called Five Dot Wonderful, or was it Five Point Wonderful? And that was the 5.1 individual audio channels from the Beatles Anthology DVDs. Essentially, hearing the individual tracks of their multi-track recordings, that was such a revelation to hear. Cause I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Usually, the way these homegrown bootlegs would be distributed was by a bootleg tree, really. Which means that there was a designated trunk, someone with the master recording, the master CD that person would make CDR copies for the branches. Like, say, five to ten branches would receive the copy, and then each branch was assigned a number of leaves. Basically, people who didn't want to distribute the CDs any further, they just wanted to receive it. Those were the leaves. It was a surprisingly efficient and fun way to trade things. Usually, we would just do two-for-one trades, just like we did back in the cassette days. We would send two blank CDRs, for every one CDR that we wanted back with music. And just as with audio cassettes, we were very picky a lot of times about the brands of CDRs. Usually the recommended CDRs were made by a Japanese company called Taiyo Yudin. They had the best quality products, and of course, you had to make sure that the CDs were made by Taiyo Yudin's Japan factory and not by their Taiwan factory. The Taiwan Yudin CDs had problems. They either wouldn't burn properly, or sometimes they'd be susceptible to CD rot. How could you tell the difference between a Yuden Japan CD and a Taiyuden non-Japan CD? Well, basically, all the yuden Japan CDs, the little inner ring on the CD itself was kind of a smoky-colored translucent ring. All the other CDRs out there usually had transparent rings. Here in America, it was pretty easy to find at bigger stores, Fuji CDs. If they said made in Japan, they were using rebranded Yudin CDs. One year at Beatlefest, I saw a vendor with all kinds of bootlegs for sale, including some of these titles that were put together by this bootleg discussion forum. The same titles that were supposed to be free. Well, I got pissed. I actually ratted the guy out to Mark lepidos I happened to see Mark, and I said, hey, Mark, there's a guy over there selling bootlegs. He said, oh, is there? And I saw him storm over to the guy, and next thing I saw, the dude was packing his stuff. (laughs) Oh, I know some people are probably ticked off at me for that, because that meant one fewer source of bootlegs, but oh well, dude was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing. But trading evolved even further, as high-speed internet were becoming a more common thing. There used to be a website, I don't think it exists anymore, at least not the way it did before, called MyPlay.com. MyPlay was basically a way you could store your music online in online lockers. There were people who discovered that as a way to trade bootlegs online. People would convert their CDs to MP3s, put them on MyPlay.com, and let people download them. You would have to give other people your username and password, of course, which caused one little problem people were finding their MyPlay.com lockers suspended. Why? Well, because the systems at MyPlay.com were detecting that there were dozens of people logged into the same account at the same time from different IP addresses. That set off some alarms. So, we came up with a little strategy of trading through MyPlay.com. People interested in a particular locker would be added to a list. The owner of the locker would send the username and password to the first person on the list, along with the rest of the names on the list. The person who receives the list will download whatever he or she wants from the locker, and then no longer access it again, and then send the credentials to the next person on the list. Repeat until you get to the end of the list. That way, nothing looks suspicious. There was only one instance of a login at the locker at any given point. People who are bigger audiophiles don't like MP3s, but thanks to people's growing interest in the cloud, there are plenty of options out there where you can store bigger files like FLAC, Free Lossless Audio Codec, and other formats that let you shrink your music down but without losing any audio quality, unlike with MP3s. Whatever trading is done nowadays, I think is done entirely online through various servers, private servers, some using public upload sites, but whatever the case, trading is still alive and well. As for me, I don't really do it anymore, mainly because I just just don't have time. I have too many interests right now, and also there's not really much out there that's left that I haven't already heard. i listen to my radio but he talked to listeners talk radio in his own room. K-K-K-K-K-K I wish I could do some uploads, but I got suspended from fineplay.com. I'll oh bug in my own man. He doesn't even know where it's Now this segment you might notice I'm talking almost exclusively of Beatles and Beach Boys bootlegs. And that's basically because that was my big obsession when I was trading bootlegs, just seeing if I could get as many recordings from my favorite artists as I could. I'd already exhausted the released recordings. I wanted more. So that's why there seems to be a lot of focus on that here. And there was one advantage though that Beach Boys traders had over Beatles traders. And that's that aside from... The official bootlegs, I should say, something you could go to the store and find in a secret section, or maybe sometimes not even very secret at all, from actual bootleg labels, Vigatone, Midnight Beats offshoot Sea of Tunes, and other labels. There were also what were called unbooted recordings, that is, music that was going around trading circles privately that was never actually on a real bootleg label. I'm talking aside from recordings made by people who went to concerts and snuck in digital tape recorders. I'm talking about tracks that just kind of leaked out when people inside the Beach Boys circle would make copies of certain tapes and lend them out to friends and say, don't tell anybody you have this. And that's actually how the first bootlegs of the infamous Smile album came out. Somebody compiled a bunch of smile recordings and would keep them in his personal stash and once in a while would let a friend borrow them. Well, this kind of trading also introduced little watermarks that would give away where a source came from. So if a person found that somebody else had a copy of these recordings that he never gave to that person, he'd know where it came from. Case in point, the earliest smile bootlegs had an instrumental that was purported to be the air segment, if I remember correctly, of the Elements Suite. Turns out it wasn't even a Beach Boys recording at all, let alone Smile. It was actually Here Come to Honeyman from Miles Davis's Porgy and Bess album. And interestingly, that recording could easily be believed to be from the Smile album given its structure and sound. But yeah, the person who made the original tape that had Smile songs on it stuck that in just so he'd know if he ever saw a copy of it with that on it. He knew he could go to the person he gave that tape to and said, "Dude, what the hell?" Copy detectors have been in other recordings since. For example, there was a project Brian Wilson did in the mid-90s that was supposed to end up being a Beach Boys album, but it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. There were only a few tracks recorded with the Beach Boys, and the rest ended up being Brian Wilson solo songs. Well, there were a couple of copies that got out and ended up on actual bootleg CDs on bootleg labels. One of them was called, I think, Landy Locked. Uh, That was a pun based on the Beach Boys Surf's Up album, which was originally going to be called Landlocked, and Brian Wilson's Therapist For a while, named Eugene Landy. So they just kind of went with that name, combined the two, and came up with Landy Locked. There was another one, I don't remember what it was called. I think it was just called the Wilson Paley Sessions or something named after Andy Paley, who was Brian Wilson's collaborator at the time. Well, each of those titles had a separate copy detector, they both came from the same source. But one person who got the tape, it was altered such that the sound quality was degraded slightly while the other copy was altered so that it had decent sound quality, but it played back a little bit too fast. And they have actually been able to pinpoint the source of whoever leaked those recordings to somebody who turned those into store-sold bootlegs. Have I ever been the recipient of something where people said, don't trade this or don't tell anybody you have this? Yes. Did I ever ask for it though? No. In fact, I'm going to talk about one that was handed to me at a dinner party. My wife and I were at a friend's house. I don't remember what year it was. We'd go there probably every year. A friend of ours would have uh, a bunch of his Beach Boys friends over for a dinner party. He is an amazing cook. He'd always make this lavish dinner and wonderful dessert. And we'd talk about the music we love and we'd bring our guitars and stuff and just have a little group sing too. Well, over dinner, One of our friends handed me this CD and said, here you go, this is just something I threw together and uh, don't trade it, don't tell anybody you have it, but I just thought uh, you'd like a copy. It was a compilation called Get the Boot. It had just random one-off Beach Boys and Brian Wilson recordings going back to the late 60s all the way up through almost the present day. There were a couple of tracks that I know that he got from me that I recorded off the radio when the Beach Boys were in the studio at a Chicago radio station. It was Brian Wilson, the rest of the group, and they were recording unplugged versions of songs from a country album they just released called Stars and Stripes. I knew they were going to be on the radio, so I recorded it, and he put those songs, there were two songs, I Can Hear Music and Little Deuce Coop, he put those on that CD. He put them in the wrong order, but hey, who's complaining? He also put a Beach Boys demo on it that he got from me, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So I can identify three of those as coming from me, and there are a bunch of other tracks that were just never bootlegged before on a bootleg label that he just kind of collected. They were sitting on his hard drive, and he wanted to put them all in one central location. So I had that CD in my collection, never traded it, listened to it, and found that a lot of the stuff he had, I had in better quality anyway. The next time we had a dinner party at the friend's house, he gave me a new version of it that was now expanded to two volumes. Same deal. Don't tell anybody you have this. It's just a bunch of songs that he had sitting on his hard drive that he acquired through online trades and through a few insiders, and he just didn't want it to get out. He just gave copies to a very small number of people that he trusted. Well, a few months later, Somebody said, hey, I found this new bootleg in a store. It's a two CD compilation called Get the Boot. And here's what's on it. And I panicked. I emailed my friend right away and said, dude, did you see this? I swear to God, it wasn't me. And he responded. He said, yeah, I kind of figured this would happen anyway. Don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. And I remember commenting about the contents of the CD. It's like, oh, yeah, I can identify this. This is from this. This is from that. This is from that. And somebody who's going to be unnamed right now, who's inside the Beach Boys inner circle, commented in that same thread about how people are in big trouble and the way they see it, if they don't want to be sued, then they're going to turn over all of the recordings, all the planning documents they have, and all the money they made from this CD. And he named off a bunch of people, including me and my wife. I don't know why he included Lisa on it. She never was involved in bootleg trading of any kind ever. She's just not into it. I guess that people know that we're both big fans, and ergo, we probably work together on everything. But I was ticked off. I was ticked off. Many years later, almost 20 years later, I'm kind of still uh, bitter about it, even though I should probably let go. I was named in this big conspiracy thing. This guy said, if you don't want to go to court, you're going to turn over all these materials I mentioned, and don't tell me you don't have them, because I know you do. So... I emailed my friend about that. I said, did you see this? He said, let me call this person who's in the Beach Boys inner circle who's threatening all this stuff. I'll straighten it all out. And I never heard about it ever again. Lisa's thought was that the guy who threatened all this potential legal action might have been the source of much of the material on the CDs and just had a panic attack. That might have been exactly what happened. But... I don't believe I've had such an interaction of don't tell anybody you have this stuff ever since. I don't think it's so much that people are panicky about that stuff now. I think it's more like in the years since, the Beach Boys have granted their fans their wishes many times and have released a treasure trove of archival material. There was a great box set in 2013 called Made in California. It was a career retrospective and it had a lot of previously unreleased recordings that people have been dying to hear. And every year since 2013, the Beach Boys have released some kind of copyright extension compilation that has stuff that people didn't even know existed. And of course, perhaps the biggest treasure trove was in 2011 when brian wilson finally agreed to let the public hear the beach boys smile sessions and there was a massive box set that came out five cds two vinyl long players a couple of books oh man it was the it was amazing it was called the smile sessions and it has pretty much everything you could possibly want that's known to exist Sadly, if there's ever anything similar for the Beatles in which people have these unreleased recordings that have never been, well, (laughs) officially bootlegged, as it were, never came my way. There's a lot of things in the vaults that I would love to hear. I would love to hear that second take of Twist and Shout, even though it's nowhere nearly as good as the take that was released. I would love to hear some revolver sessions. I'd also like to hear Take 2 of Tomorrow Never Knows, Take 3 is the released version, and Take 1 was released on the anthology set in 1996. So, my obsessive-compulsive disorder wants that second take. Ugh! The legendary 27 minute version of Helter Skelter, though, well, after hearing the earlier takes of Helter Skelter and what that 27 minute version likely sounded like, eh, I'm not really clamoring for that so much. But hey, if there's anybody who wants to send me some secret Beatles tracks, uh, well, please do not email me at schnookpodcast.com and don't let me know where I can find them because bootleg trading is illegal. One time in the mid-90s, I think it was 1994, this was back when people posted their email addresses publicly, and spam wasn't a big deal. But I got an email from someone saying that he happened upon an old Beach Boys demo, and he wanted to know if I'd like a copy of it. Naturally, I said, hell yeah. He said, okay, I'll make you a copy, and I'll send it to you, but you're going to owe me a really huge favor. I said, I don't care, it's worth it. So, well, a week or two later, a package arrived for me, and it was on a TDK Type 1 tape, and it just had a little label on it that said Beach Boys Demo times 2. So I listened to it, and it was something that I had never heard before in any form at all. Brian Wilson's voice was clearly audible in the recording, but it was a kind of a low-fidelity recording, and the demo was on there twice in a row, hence the 2X. He did tell me it was okay to trade with other people if I wanted to, so that was pretty cool. And the thing is, the guy didn't get back to me after that, telling me what I owe him. So I wrote down the lyrics. I was able to make out most, if not all, the lyrics. And I reached out to as many people as I could think of to see if they recognized the lyrics from maybe another tune. Maybe it wasn't a Brian Wilson original. Maybe it was an old standard. I took the tape to work at the Joliet Public Library and played it for Mike in Circulation, who was also a part-time DJ and knew just about every song under the sun. He Listened to it, he said, Well, it sounds kind of like the warmth of the sun by the beach boys, but I, I know it's not that. He said, I don't recognize it at all. So I thought, Hmm, this is weird. Then it occurred to me, I reached out to I don't know how her name is pronounced. I don't know if it's Clobus, Clobos, whatever. Her name is spelled Lori, but apparently it's pronounced Lari, but whatever. Lari at the time was the president of the Brian Wilson fan club, so I reached out to her and I asked if she recognized the song. I said, here are the chords, and she responded to me. She said, I pulled out my guitar, and I played the chord pattern, and no, it doesn't sound familiar to me at all. And I responded. I said, can I send you a copy of the tape, and maybe you can play it for Brian and see if he knows anything about it. And she agreed to that, and she made me promise that all the tape would have would be that demo. And there's a good reason for that, by the way. It's because A lot of recording artists get unsolicited tapes from people, and that's not the way to get your music recognized. you got to go through an agent. you got to do that. And by the way, if you do go through an agent, if that agent asks you for a cent at any time ever, drop the agent. But anyway, yeah, I promised Laurie that there would be nothing but the demo, so I mailed the tape to her, and then a couple of weeks later, she actually wrote me a letter and said... Hey, I played the tape for Brian when he was visiting the office recently, and he recognized it. He said he wrote the song, but he didn't remember if he had a collaborator, and he said he was playing bass with his brother Carl playing guitar and singing harmony with him, which I thought it was, too. It sounded kind of like Carl. She said he thinks he recorded it in 1963. He and Carl were at a friend's house, and there happened to be a microphone and a tape recorder set up, so they recorded that little demo there. And she said... I do want to know though, where you got this from? She said, we're not looking to get anybody in trouble or anything. Don't worry about that. We're just curious as to how people end up with these things when the actual artists don't have a copy themselves. She said that Brian added the tape to his own archive. So that was fascinating. I sent a copy to a guy named Bob Haynes. Sadly, he died a few years ago, but he has some kind of personal connection to Brian Wilson, and he himself had an extensive library of unreleased Brian Wilson and Beach Boys songs. He played a few over the phone for me once, actually. And he told me that he played the tape over the phone to Bob Norberg, who was a collaborator of Brian Wilson's in 1963, and Bob said that it was him singing with Brian and not Carl. So I don't know what the truth is i don't know for sure but all i know is that song is now legally available it was released in 2013 the first year that various artists were releasing copyright extension compilations i mentioned those things before but the reason for those compilations is that apparently in some places if an unreleased recording stays unreleased for 50 years then it becomes public domain So what a lot of artists did to protect their copyright is to take unreleased recordings and release them online or some other format. Like Bob Dylan does that every year, I think, but his copyright extension releases are only available on vinyl and there are only a couple of hundred of those pressed. But the Beach Boys copyright extension releases happen to be digital for the most part. The song is called Thank Him and you can get it on iTunes and I'd like to think that it was because of the tape that I sent Brian. That was why it came out. So as for the guy that I owed a huge favor to, several years later, he emailed me again and said, I don't know if you remember me, but I sent you a tape of a Beach Boys demo. I just want you to know I have another copy that's in better sound quality. Do you want me to send it your way? And I said, absolutely. Here's my address. Sadly, though, I never did get that upgraded recording. you, <laughs> How do the artists themselves feel about black market recordings being available? It depends on whom you ask. One Beach Boys fan talked about how he happened to take an elevator with Al Jardine of the Beach Boys. And he actually said to the guy, hey, aren't you Al Jardine? And he said that Al said, yes, I am. And don't buy bootlegs. I can understand why they wouldn't want people to buy bootlegs. Because, well, that's money going to people who shouldn't be getting the money. And the money doesn't go to the artists. My response to that is, well, if you don't want people buying the bootlegs, release the material that is on those bootlegs so people can buy them legitimately and you get the money you deserve. In fact, Frank Zappa did just that. He had either a series of albums or a box set that was called Beat the Boots. Frank Zappa took the actual bootlegs that were out there and just reproduced them himself, artwork and everything. Didn't go back to the vault for better masters. He just took them and released them himself as part of that Beat the Boots series. So that way, he got that money. I think Bruce Springsteen once said that he knew that he made it big time when he saw a bootleg Springsteen recording in a store, and it made him feel good that he was in that kind of a demand. I don't remember if it was Larry King or somebody else who not terribly long ago asked Paul McCartney, Does it bother you when people trade bootlegs of your music? And he just kind of laughed and said no. The Doobie Brothers, however. One of the most famous sitcom episodes of any show ever is the What's Happening episode called Doobie or Not Doobie. The plot of the episode took shape when Roger was interviewing the Doobie Brothers for the school paper, and he asked what's one big problem that you don't like having to deal with. And somebody in the band said people bootlegging our concerts because, man, a recording gets out, it's low quality, and they're essentially stealing our performances. They send some dumb kid out with a tape recorder and pay him to record the concert, and it's, it's a terrible thing. It shouldn't be happening. Well, in reality, I don't remember which member of the Doobie Brothers it was. It wasn't Michael McDonald. I didn't know that. He commented on that episode. He's like, yeah, we were just shooting an episode of what's happening. You know, we just followed the script and just did our thing. He said, believe me, bootlegging is the least of our worries. <laughs> so so I, I really don't know. I, I really don't know what to make in general. The One thing I can say on behalf of artists who don't like that people do this is that it takes control away from the artist. They don't have a say in how that music gets out doing what Frank Zappa did, and so many people are starting to do now, and putting out archival releases, that kind of returns the power to the artist, because now they can actually have control of what goes in, what goes out. Hello there. (laughs) I be Roger Thomas. Which doobie you be? Back during my heyday of bootleg trading, I and other folks involved had a gentleman's agreement that if the material that we're trading ever comes out legitimately, we would buy it. We would absolutely buy it. And I've stuck to that word. I bought the Smile Sessions. I purchased all of the Beach Boys archival releases that have come out for copyright extension purposes. I bought the Beatles Anthology, their BBC compilations, and I will continue to do so. There are some people who I know that I've traded with back all those years ago who said, yeah, 40 bucks for this release. I don't know if I want to spend that kind of money on this. And I would come back and say, dude, Back then, you would pay 25 to $30 per CD to a bootlegger for this same material in lesser quality. Here we have what's essentially a two CD set in much better sound quality with more material and for only the cost of $20 each, and the money goes to the right people this time. Just shut up and buy it. And I reminded him of that gentleman's agreement, and he's like, yeah, I know, but it's. Like I did, said, dude, just shut up and get it, all right? Just shut up. I know what you do for a living. I know you can afford it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do an operative. Operative. Uh, uh, yeah. The state of bootleg trading is totally different now. As far as I know, it's... It just doesn't exist quite as much anymore. At least that's the way I see it. Not that I've actively been looking. But there are two things that I attribute that to. For one thing, I think home CD burners were the first thing that really put a dent in the bootleg industry. Why would people buy this stuff if they could just burn it themselves? They could just borrow something from a friend or do a trade with CDRs now. And also, it might just be the law of diminishing returns. The more material that gets out there, the less there is left to get out there. There hasn't been much in Beatles bootlegs lately with new studio outtakes, and the only thing really that comes out now is just things discovered in upgraded sound quality. That's really it. I think over the last 10 years or so, in the Beach Boys world... Those who work for the Beach Boys, I'm guessing, probably no longer trust people and allow them to so much as listen to the tapes that they have, let alone blend them out to friends or make copies of them. Plus, the proliferation of archival releases these days kind of makes bootleg trading not really worth the hassle, I guess. That's my observation. I might be wrong. But hey, what do I know? I'm not a bootlegger. I'm just, a uh, well, you know. Oh, and by the way, I realized my explanation of the watermarks might have been a little bit unclear. Here's what I mean. Let's say that I have a tape of some wonderful, eh, I don't know, Green Day recordings, but they're unreleased recordings. I'm not supposed to have them. And Green Day knows that I have them, but I just can't help myself. I want to give my friends a few copies. I want to give Dave a copy. I want to give Jane a copy but I tell them strictly, do not make copies for other friends. What I might do to identify in case someone else has a copy for some reason that didn't come from me, maybe I will edit out a verse of one of the songs on Dave's copy. And maybe on Jane's copy, I'll slip in a song that's not by Green Day, but maybe Gin Blossoms and make her think that it's Green Day. So that way, if I happen to bump into someone who says, hey, I have this awesome set of Green Day songs, and I notice that there's a Gin Blossoms song in there, then I know that Jane violated my trust. So that's kind of what I meant by the watermarking. Well, I'm just going to cut this transition short and say, there, that's what I had to say about bootleg trading and my days of doing that, which really are pretty much over. So, yeah And uh, hey, let's just end the episode now, shall we? This has been chapter 17 of autobiography of a schnook and thank you so much for listening. I also thank Jeffrey Castel de Oro for helping me out with this I uh, really a really big time, my friend. And of course, thank you to my wife Lisa, who's been so patient with me uh, putting together this podcast every month. If you wish to reach out to me again my email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com my Twitter, and Instagram handle is Podcast, and the Facebook page is at facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. Jello is a registered trademark of Kraft Foods. Coming up in chapter 18, um, well, keep listening and you'll find out. Ha ha ha. And as I always like to tell you, my friends, the good goes around. And I awkwardly come up with some kind of way to end this by reassuring you about how that good goes around. But, you're on your own this time. I'll try to think of something better next month thanks again for listening all the best so what determines whether the bracketed text will be a <laughs> so what determines whether the bracketed text will be an ad- <sighs> <sighs>